talk about all women as if they were fine ladies instead of rational creatures. None of us want to be in calm waters all our lives. Jane Austen. Let women be what God intended, a healthy of a man who would totally live from duties and vacations. Only Victoria. The Survival Lab. Hello and welcome to, to the Survival Lab. <laughs> I can't believe we did it at the same time, that was pretty good. There's some intense staring. Yeah. Anyway, I'm Sarah. And I'm Sean. And welcome to week 11. Oh my god. Double digits. We've done amazingly well. We've done 11 episodes. We've nearly done 11 episodes. We're doing 11 episodes. (laughs) In progress. Um, And I'm I'm really proud of you. Thank you. Why are you proud of me? Because you've done nearly 11 episodes. Oh, I'm proud of you too. Thank you. That's what I was waiting (laughs) for. I would never be proud of you for not doing something unless, you know, it, it was murdering someone. Mm. Always, I'm always proud that you've not murdered someone. Come close. No, no, that's why I'm proud of you. <laughs> anyway, so this week, what are we talking about, Sean? Well, we're talking about women, Sarah. We are, but women when? In the 1800s. Well done. And I recently learned if you're in the 1800s, that makes you in the 19th century. Yeah, we did some clarifying, didn't we? So we well, were that's a, that's a sweet way of saying it. You, you just told me how history and numbers worked. <laughs> I'm glad. Confusing. I'm glad you checked. <laughs> Understanding friend. You are a very understanding friend who also has been around dyslexic people enough. <laughs> always best to clarify. Always yeah. best to clarify. <laughs> anyway, Sean, I'm going to tell you about how women and men were not equal in the 19th century. Oh my god, I AKA am surprised. 1800. So women were seen as the weaker sex. The middle classes took the role of women very seriously because they did not have to worry about things like poverty. The idle woman was to be the angel in the house and support her husband. Can you imagine anything worse? My source was BBC Bite Size, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. We can go and do our GCSEs after this. Actually, if anyone is listening and using this as a GCSE source material, I I suggest you don't. Uh, I've actually done quite a bit of research this week. (laughs) I've got a little bit carried away with myself. So I'm going to tell you everything about being a woman in the 1800s. So at the beginning of the century, women had very few rights of their own, particularly once they were married. (gasps) Upon marriage, women became the property of their husband. A remnant of this can still be seen today with married women taking their husband's surname. Well, I'm going to say, ladies, you don't have to. When me and Mike got married, I was adamant that I would not be taking his surname and he would not be taking mine and we wouldn't be double-barrelling because you end up with very long names and when you're in a rush trying to sign stuff, you don't want to have to deal with that. So we chose a new, completely new name and Mike, being the sweet little feminist that he is, he said that the name should be either my mother's maiden name or his mother's maiden name. And because I haven't ever known how to spell my mother's maiden name, it's Riley. I know the letters, but I'm not sure what order they're in. We chose Berry, because I can spell that. Yeah. Except when I went to change my name at the bank, I wrote down Sean Beery. (laughs) Twice. They had to get me a a third clean form so I could start again. Oh, Sean. Sean Beery, thank you very much. (laughs) I like it. Because you've been drinking. Always. 
So politics and government were matters for men. Of course. Women <laughs> like how we said that exactly at the same time. We, we know our place. We know our place, clearly. We're yeah. well trained. Get back in the kitchen. Yeah. Women supposedly did not have the brain capacity to understand such things, and so they were entirely excluded from the process. Women could not vote, no matter who they were, and there were certainly no women in Parliament. Essentially, Sean, women were expected to get married and have children. So I am clearly a massive failure in this respect. I'm definitely what would have been called a spinster. I don't have children. Spinster. Spinster. I don't have children. I do have a partner, but, you know, it's not as good as being married, apparently. Um, and it was a derogative derogative term in the 19th century. Women did see that each in 1978. Uh, it prepared them for the role of being an angel in the house. Oh, wonderful. So rather than attracting a husband through their domestic abilities, middle-class girls were coached in what was known as these would be learned either at boarding school or from a resident governess. So, um, what, what could I learn? Well, an example is in Jane Austen's Pride and Precious. The snobbish Caroline Bingley lists the skills required by any young lady who considers herself accomplished. Okay. So, a woman must have a thorough knowledge of music, singing, drawing, dancing, and the modern languages. And besides all this, she must possess a certain something in her air and manner of walking, the tone of her voice, her address, and expressions. Yeah, I reckon I could win all that. Not the singing, though. However, Sean, don't get too carried okay. away because you don't want to be called a blue stocking. <laughs> <laughs> I, how did you know? <laughs> I've never enjoyed being called a blue stocking. So, blue stockings was the name given to women who had devoted themselves too enthusiastically to intellectual pursuits. For what? Yeah, blue stockings are considered unfeminine and off-putting in the way that they attempted to usurp men's natural intellectual superiority. <laughs> mm-hmm. Some doctors reported that too much study actually had a damaging effect on the ovaries, turning attractive young women into dried-up prunes. Oh my god, are you kidding? <laughs> I literally want to invent a time machine and go back in time and kick people in the balls. I think the men were just so frightened. And they called themselves physicians, and they were like, yeah, read too much and your ovaries going to fall out. Basically, they were, they, you know, they were really confident in themselves, these guys, and they, um, they were too scared of the women. They were. They knew that they were actually, you know, capable of surpassing them. Hi, Dorchester. Later in the century, when Oxford and Cambridge opened their doors to women, many families refused to let their clever daughters attend for fear that they would make themselves unmarriageable. Hi, Blim. Yeah, we need you not to be involved too much, buddy. Okay, carry on. So at the same time, a young girl was not expected focus too obviously on finding a husband. Being forward in the company of men suggested a worrying sexual appetite. So women were assumed to desire marriage because it allowed them to become mothers rather than to pursue sexual or emotional satisfaction. One doctor, William Acton, famously declared that the majority of women, happily for them, are not very much troubled with sexual feeling of any kind. Not not what? Not troubled with sexual feeling? Yeah, girls don't, they don't, women don't feel that. Girls usually married in their early to mid-twenties. Typically, the groom will be five years older. Not only did this reinforce the natural hierarchy between the sexes, but it also made sound financial sense. Sure. A young man needed to be able to show that he earned enough money to support a wife and any future children before the girl's father would give his permission. You know, because you're always a possession. Sure, well, you know, you got a da- you, you, you came with a lump of money, didn't you? Um, so if a young man was particularly pious, he might manage to stay chaste until he married. 
many respectable young men have however resorted to using and I'm quoting this from what I've read prostitutes <gasps> sex workers I probably shouldn't whisper that down a microphone <laughs> all the major cities had red light districts where it's easy to find a woman whom you could pay for sex out of towners can, could consult such volumes as Roger Funnyman's The Swell's Night Guide to nice. Metropolis so I learnt something and mm. I don't know if it's true uh, and I have no facts to back it up tell me anyway but I heard slash learnt now take as fact that um, Merkins, which is a pubic wig, um, was used to hide the syphilitic scarring and ickiness of people with syphilis. So you'd wear like a little Merkin, little 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 wig on your falula, and that would hide all the scars from and the scabs from syphilis. You say this because my next sentence is. Unfortunately, syphilis and other sexual diseases were rife. They sure were. Yeah, and many young men unwittingly passed on the infection to their wives. Yeah. So, there was a guy called Oliver Sacks. He wrote a book called... Uh, don't mistake your wife for a hat or I have that book it's a good book it's really good and there's a story in there about um, an old lady who has syphilis and she has it so bad that it turns into something called Cupid's disease and Cupid's disease makes you super horny and happy <laughs> um, and they offered to like treat her syphilis and be like you know we, we can make it mm. you know you're gonna die but with it like but we can make it a bit better and she's like nope I'm having a great time <laughs> really happy really horny it is a good book we highly recommend the sex worker was the shadow that haunted the well run middle class home she service the needs of the men of the house um, not just before marriage but sometimes during the marriage too just like the men she slept with but unlike their wives this, I'm going to have to use the words that was in this article the prostitute was a worker in the economic marketplace exchanging services for cash so <clears throat> let me clarify a lady shouldn't have a job but a sex worker can yeah. oh cool I just wanted to make yeah. sure that there were double standards yeah complete sense I know so the doctors such as Acton were extremely worried by the problem the prostitute presented in particular the way she spread sexual disease amongst the male population the way she spread the disease you know sure well you know um, always blame the ladies for this reason contagious diseases act contagious diseases act that's not an easy one to get your no, mouth around were instituted from 1860 which allowed in certain towns for the forced medical examination of any woman who was suspe- suspected of being a sex worker. oh my god oh, no. if she was found to be infected she was placed in a lock hospital until she was cured a reform movement led by Josephine Butler vigorously Well, Sarah, thank you very much for that very informative, uh, what I'd like to call it, a mini-lecture. Thank you. I think I did enough research to actually write a dissertation. I had to delete a lot of it because I thought you probably don't want to listen to I'm going to gonna call you a swat. I got really into it. Well, that's great. You should do. Women's, uh, women are important. I, I like this. We are interesting. I liked it. So I'm going to tell you a story and I got my information. I'd like to call it research, (laughs) but I'm not going to (laughs) because that would be a lie. (laughs) But I got my information factually or otherwise from the way of the pirates.com. Oh my God. (laughs) Wikipedia, because it is my best friend. Uh, and a website called smartbitchestrashybooks.com. <laughs> so I think we can all uh, really realise what kind of level uh, you I've, have I've taken on my research to, <laughs> to this week. Um, 
because I really care about the podcast, obviously. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. I do, I do. Let me tell you a story about a woman. It is what we're here for. So, dear listener, if you can just hear a little singing in the background, it's because um, I run a a sort of nightclub here <laughs> from my home, uh, and that it will be my husband entertaining uh, the dishes in his his act. He's wonderful. I don't even know what he's singing to, <laughs> but he's having a good time. He is. So. <clears throat> I'm pro- I'm probably going to butcher these names because this happened in China. I will do my my best, but my Chinese, my Mandarin isn't great. Ching Xing or Madame Ching, born in 1775, as a young woman, she worked as a sex worker, working on a floating brothel. <laughs> wow. Oh my god! In a place called Are you ready? Gung Hazo during the Qing Qing Dynasty. Q I N G. You know, like on Google, you can put in how to pronounce. Yeah, but that would take more time. So I'm just gonna go with a. Uh, du- I'm gonna I'm gonna start again. But during a dynasty in the early 19th century, uh, and I've written uh, that apparently it was during the uh, Jiaqing Emperor's um, rule. She really came into her own. Her early life isn't well documented, but some articles say that she used her charms to acquire a few ships from her johns. And another article says that she was kidnapped by a pirateer. Who, uh, and she later became his wife. So, you know, conflicting fa- facts. It was in 1801 that she married Cheng Ai, a notorious pirate who would later go on to be the leader of the Red Flag. Fl- so, um... Notorious was uh, Cheng Yi that the emperor gave him the title Golden Dragon of the Imperial Staff. Ooh. What a title! And effectively promoted him to the rank of prince, and in, ter- and in turn made Chung Shi a pirate princess. <gasps> I wish I was a pirate princess, but without the murdering and the maiming. And the raping. And the raping. So it was a bit complicated back then, um, but the emperor was basically using the Red Flag Fleet as a sort of extra navy, I think, but at other times was like totally against the pirates. It seems confusing. And as I said earlier, I really didn't bother to check it out further. Anyway, following their marriage, Ching Shi um, participated fully in her husband's piracy and became known as Cheng Yi Sao. So that translates to wife of Cheng Yi. And I'm not sure that I'd be okay with my name being changed to wife of Mike. (laughs) Formerly known as Sean, but now just refer to me as wife of Mike. (laughs) But apparently that's what you did back then. Anyway, the wife of, um, I think you said Mike then. (laughs) (laughs) Cheng Yi Sao, with her husband, adopted a young man called Cheng Yi Po as their stepson, making him Cheng Yi's fully legitimate heir. And some articles say the reason for the adoption was because the husband and the young man were lovers and this was the only way that they could ensure that he had access to you know yeah erage erage and stuff like that so cheng formed a massive oh no i've just skipped let me skip back blah 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 cheng shi also bore two sons and i'm not going to say their names because i'll butcher them so she had her adopted son and then she had two sons and i believe a daughter at some point as well the chengs formed a massive coalition from small gangs and turned that into a federation of seventy thousand men 400 ships (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah, mate. Their coalition consisted of six fleets, known by the colours of red, green, blue, black, white and yellow. In 1804, the Chengs led the most powerful pirate fleet in all of China. But on a fateful day, the 16th of November, 1807, Cheng Yi died. He was about 40. Not much as... I'm going to do a burp. <laughs> oh my God! <laughs> <laughs> it just came out. That was Linda McCarthy's fault. I was trying not to do it down the microphone. <laughs> Back to the story. Shit, where did I get to? <laughs> oh yeah, sorry. We were at the really serious bit where Chengi died. <laughs> sorry, how disrespectful. <clears throat> anyway, not not much is known about how he passed away. Okay. So, um, <clears throat> as I was trying to tell you, some no one really knows how he <laughs> passed away. Some accounts indicate that he was killed at sea by a, tsun- a tsunami, while others insinuate that he was n- murdered in Vietnam. Jing Shi immediately began manoeuvring her way into leadership position. She took control of her late husband's pirate fleet, and by 1809, she commandeered over 80, 800 large ships. A thousand smaller ones. She also commanded over 70,000 men and women in her pirate crew. She commanded the Red Flag Fleet and controlled South China's seas. She earned the trust of her lieutenants by sharing the power with them. When these men under her, uh, with these men under her, the gangs collected money, raided camps and ships. They raided the China Chinese river towns, coastal villages, demanding contributions, and they quickly grew in power. Madame Jing and her crew escaped every attempt of capture and her band of pirates was eventually offered amnesty for her crimes and they offered the crew amnesty as well. She said, no thanks, I'm cool, I'm pirating, doing a pirate thing. Uh, oh, I've gone too far. Back up, back up, tell me what you want to do now. It was um, a bit weird because <clears throat> she then married her adopted son. I kind of suspected this was going to happen. Oh, yeah? I did. I did the research and I didn't see it coming. Really? I, was, I could see, like, some, yeah, plot I was like, oh, okay. Odd. Uh-huh. Um, some seem to think that it might have been a power move because it was still better to have, like, a guy in charge and he could, uh-huh. you know, but she was still connected. But, you know, a girl's got to do what she's got to do in a pirate world. And also he's the heir. He sure is. So, so yeah, wants- power. She was a quiet and clever leader. And she had a code of conduct with consequences if people broke them. 
anyone giving their own orders that didn't come directly from Ching Chi or disobeyed those of a, of a superior would be beheaded on the spot. Wow, Chuck. extreme. Yep, yep. No one was to steal from the public fund or from any of the villages that supplied the pirates. All goods taken as booty had to be presented to the group for inspection. The booty was registered by the purser and then distributed by the fleet leader. The original Caesar received 20% extra and the rest was put in the public fund. So the public fund like helped support ships that weren't doing so well. Actual money was turned over to the squadron leader who gave a small amount back to the Caesar so the rest could I'm going to repeat myself again. So the rest could be used to purchase supplies to running the running cost of the fleet. Totally. Number five is my favourite. Rape of female captives was punishable by death. Excellent. Yeah. Many female captives were released. The pirates were allowed to take wives from among the captives, but they could be then punished by death if they were unfaithful or failed to provide for their wives. So they were often, you know, just thrown into the sea if they couldn't look after their wives. The crappy thing was that the wives were then also thrown into the sea. Um, wow. Yeah, often with a cannibal tied to their legs. Oh dear. Yeah, not great. But the, the first bit is quite progressive and great. Hmm. Don't rape the ladies, marry them, try and look after them. them. Don't end up going for a dip in the ocean with a cannibal on your leg. There were other rules that were punishable, uh, either through flogging, being clapped in the irons, uh, or being quartered. That sounds pretty horrible. Yeah. You could have your ear removed. Oh. There were so much things that you could that could happen. Um, so it was best to follow the rules. The takeaway here, though, I think, uh, is that she did stop a fair amount of rape. And while I don't agree with all her methods, I do think that's a uh, in January 1808, the imperial government tried to destroy her fleet in a series of fierce battles, but Ching Shi pillaged and took the ships. <laughs> the emperor's forces were left with just f- fishing vessels um, for the remaining of the battle, which must have been fairly awkward. For years, the red flag fleet under Ching Shi's rule could not be defeated. But from September to November 1809, their luck changed. The fleet suffered a series of defeats at the Battle of Tiger's Mouth. Ooh, that sounds exciting. It does, doesn't it? And there was no way that they could um, hold out forever. In 1810, they surrendered to the Portuguese Navy. And on January the 21st, they later accepted amnesty offers by the imperial government to all the pirates who agreed to surrender, ending their careers and allowing them to keep the loot. Out of the fleet... 17,318 pirates, that was how many were in the fleet, Um, 115 were exiled and only 126 were put to death under this agreement, which is a pretty good number. Yeah. Not too bad. Mm. So most of them agreed to the rules. Some were like, meh, maybe, so they got exiled and some were like, pirate till I die and they were like... That's going to be today. Yeah, and that is the life of a pirate. That is a life of a pirate, yeah. So some, some were pirate till die. Ching Pu, the son slash hubby, uh, got a job as a captain okay. for the, the um, Navy. For, not for the Portuguese Navy, for the, you know, Imperial Navy. And then, but then Ching Pu died in, at sea in 1822. And Ching Shi moved the family to a place I'm not going to mention, because I can't say it, and opened a gambling house. Uh, she had a few ships left uh, and she was involved in the salt trades. Oh. So she got a bit of money from that Um, in her later years she even served as an advisor to Lin Ziexu in the battle with the British army during the first opium wars which broke out in 1839 Wow. In 1844, she died in bed, surrounded by her family at the age of 69. 
she's widely accepted to be the most successful pirate in history. Wow, that is a story, Sean. I had a lot of big words. And a big butt. And a big butt. <laughs> <laughs> and a pretty big pirate bitch. You are, you are. I'm, I'm not the pirate bitch, she's the pirate bitch, but I she really was pretty fucking story. cool, right? Yeah, I really enjoyed that. It's not what I was expecting, and I enjoyed that. Thanks. Thank you. No, thank you. So, I want to talk to you about hysteria. I feel you need to. <laughs> I think so too. So this was a diagnosable physical condition in women in the 19th century. Hysteria, according to Wikipedia... Can I just stop you there? Now, I'm one of these people who does look up their symptoms when they're ill on Google. What if I end up with hysteria? <laughs> I'm a bit worried that I'm going to self-diagnose with hysteria. That's fine. You okay. just need to listen to my story. Okay. And maybe you'll get some top tips. Okay. I'm <laughs> excited. <laughs> or maybe you won't. Okay. Um, hysteria, according to Wikipedia, is a pejorative term that colloquial means ungovernable emotional excess and can refer to a temporary state of mind or emotion. Wow, okay. Most of us have been there. Yeah, yeah. So p- female hysteria was once a common medical diagnosis for women, which was described as exhibiting a wide array of symptoms. Are you ready to check out your Okay, symptoms? yeah. Okay, so these symptoms include anxiety. Yep, got that. Shortness of breath. Often. <laughs> fainting. No, not so much. Nervousness. Yes. Sexual desire. Always. <laughs> Insomnia. Yes. Fluid retention. Yeah. Heaviness in the abdomen. <laughs> Depends when I last ate. <laughs> Irritability. Yes. Loss of appetite for food or sex. But paradoxically, sexually forward behaviour. Okay. So you want it, but you don't. Do you want it, but you're hungry? And a tendency to cause trouble for others. <laughs> it is no longer recognised by medical authorities as a medical disorder. Its diagnosis and treatment, however, were routine for hundreds of years in Western Europe. I bet they did something awful, didn't they? In Western medicine, hysteria was considered both common and chronic among women. The American Psychiatric Association dropped the term hysteria. In 1952. Are you kidding? I am not. Oh my god. Even though it was categorised as a disease, hysteria symptoms... <laughs> a disease! Mm-hmm. Hysteria symptoms were synonymous with normal functioning female sexuality. Sure. In extreme cases, the woman may have been forced to enter an insane asylum or to have <gasps> undergone surgical hysterectomy. Having normal functioning female sexuality, remember that. So the word hysteria originates from the Greek word for uterus. Sure. Hysteria. The oldest record of hysteria dates back to 1900 BC when Egyptians recorded behavioural abnormalities in adult women. The Egyptians attributed the behavioural disturbances to a wandering uterus. A wandering uterus. Mine often wanders. Like how? It's it, it has the wondering thoughts. It's all attached. And Pon- pondering. Oh, uh, wondering. I said wondering. Oh, well, what mine's dyslexic. Like how you... <laughs> <laughs> Let's move on. <laughs> Between the 5th and 13th centuries, however, the increasing influence of Christianity in the oh, yeah. Latin West altered medical and public understanding of hysteria and hysteria became perceived as satanic possession. Oh my god! <laughs> so, the um, devil is in my uterus. Basically. So instead of admitting patients to a hospital... Oh no. The church began treating patients through prayers, amulets, and exorcisms. Oh, 
you know it's going to go wrong when your vicar gets involved with the uterus. So furthermore, during the medieval and renaissance periods, many patients of hysteria were prosecuted as witches. Of course they were. And underwent interrogations, torture and execution. Imagine, and you're having your hysteria, well, you're being accused of hysteria because you're on your cy- in cycle, having, you a having, having a bad period or whatever, and then yeah. someone's accusing you of being a witch and giving you a hard time. Do you think it's going to go well? <laughs> I mean, it's the fear of women, isn't it? Yeah. In the late 19th century, French neurologist Jean-Martin Chacot attempted... You're quite sexy when you do French. Do it again. Yeah. Oh my god. <laughs> I watched the Adam's family last night. It is really good. Caramia. Caramia. <laughs> anyway, let's not get carried away because I not... get diagnosed with hysteria. <laughs> I'll reenact that. Um, so, Charcot attempted to tackle what he referred to as the great neurosis or hysteria. Charcot theorised that hysteria was a hereditary physiological disorder. He believed hysteria impaired areas of the brain which provoked the physical symptoms displayed in each patient. While Charcot believed hysteria was hereditary, he also thought that environmental factors such as stress could trigger hysteria in, in an individual. He's triggering it in me right now. Is he? So Charcot published over 120 case studies of patients who he diagnosed with hysteria. To treat his patients, Charcot used hypnosis, which he determined was only successful when used on hysterics. Using patients as props, Charcot executed dramatic public demonstrations of hysterical patients and his cures for hysteria, which many suggest produced the hysterical phenomenon. Furthermore, Charcot noted similarities between demon possession and hysteria. And thus he concluded, oh, this is a big word, demonomania was a form of hysteria. Nice. So for me, I see Shark as a bit of a showman. Sure, he sounds like a um, snake oil salesman. Yeah, and like he invited in audiences. Yeah, come and look how good I am. Like famous people at the time, like famous dancers, and he got his patients to, yeah, perform. So now I've given you some background into hysteria, I'm going to tell you the story of Marie Whitman was also known as the Queen of the Hysterics. Nice. My sources, and not like yours, <laughs> <laughs> my sources are Wikipedia, Gizmodo, and The Independent. All sound reputable. I hope so. So Whitman was born in Paris on April the 15th, 18- in, Could you do that in a French voice, Paris? <laughs> Whitman was born en Paris. Oh! À Paris. En... <laughs> 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 1859, Whitman's father was a Swiss carpenter who was prone to anger. He um, allegedly went insane and was placed in an institution. Her mother was a linen maid. Five of Whitman's eight siblings died of epilepsy and seizures. And at 22 months old, she became deaf and mute after suffering seizures herself. But she later regained her speech and hearing around the age of seven. That's incredible. Yeah, she's... She rarely attended school because of her difficulties learning, and she could barely read and write. Um, she was prone to fits of anger, which her mother um, responded to by throwing water on her. Right, yeah. She was probably angry because she was finding it hard to communicate. Uh, Don't need to douse her in water. At the age of 12, she was apprenticed to a furrier. Furrier? Yeah, they do with the furs. Not a farrier? No, a furrier. Not a furry either. Um, her attacks worsened, with Whitman losing consciousness and urinating on herself. However, they were usually at night so she could keep them hidden. When, it, when she was 13 years old, the furrier would kiss her mm. whenever they were alone and attempted to rape her. Her attacks became more frequent and she began having tremors. Later saying that everything I held in my hands escaped me. 
the furrier assumed that her clumsiness was intentional, so she ran away after he attempted to beat her. He sounds like a terrible human and a terrible employer. Yeah, indeed. So I'm going to put some, well, I say I, Sharma put some pictures on our social media. I will. I found a picture of Whitmer in one of her cataleptic poses. Oh, wow. That's her. She looks like a ballet dancer. She does. So along with 6,000 or so other women, um, Whitman, who was often known as Blanche, even though that wasn't her, her name, yeah, she was an inmate of Salpetria Hospital on Paris. You sound so sexy. Mon amour. <laughs> <laughs> Where Charcot worked and developed theory and practice. He was convinced that these women were far from universally incurable. Oh, that's nice. Yeah, so hysteria surely operated according to distinct laws, which if understood, could be counteracted to the improvement, if not the total cure of the sufferer. Oh. So receptive was Blanche Whitman to Charcot's powers that she became his principal demonstrator. Ooh. Known as the Queen of Hysterics. Upon admission, Whitman was found to have partial numbness on her right side and a loss of sensitivity in her left arm, as well as ovarian sensitivity before attacks. She collected objects, including artificial roses and religious items. And she wore a scapula, which I didn't look up what that was. A scapula? Isn't that like kind of a bug? Yeah, let's just... Skin past that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> she was of average intelligence, her memory was good, though she believed it had declined over the previous year due to her frequent use of ether. Ah, uh, well, you know, <clears throat> it's not great for you. Nah. She was... You will get you fucked up, <laughs> She was soon treated by Charcot, who believed she had hysteria. Her attacks began seven days after her admission and would last up to several hours. Ooh. During which she would make rapid motions become rigid and act out sexual scenes she'd experience generalised stiffness with limb extension finger flexion and tetanic contractions downward deviation of the eyes and foaming at the mouth Um, that all sounds quite alarming yeah this was also followed by vertical and rhythmic movement of the head that would strike the pillow for a few seconds in the clonic period so she would mumble in a state of delirium frequently uttering blanche and this is the name of one of her sisters, and then Blanche became her nickname, so she kept saying Blanche. Okay. So in 1878, Charcot began treating patients, including women, with hypnosis. She was also treated with ether, remember she had that habit before, chloroform. Also great for you. And the nitrite, and there was some success, but she soon showed tolerance to the ether. Sure. Well, you know. <laughs> Static electricity from a Ramsden machine was also used in 1879 to restore feeling to the right side of the body. She was also a subject for Faradization experiments where electricity was used to induce muscular movements. Oh my god! Often for photography, but she was a bit of a... Kind of abused. Yeah. So Charcot gave, as I said before, weekly lectures and demonstrations with patients, including Blanche, and they were frequently attended by dancers and actresses and other performers wishing to see the wide range of emotions that Blanche displayed during her attacks. Though popular, they were criticised for their circus-like showmanship and sexual innuendo. Under hypnosis, Pittman was made to act out theatrics and comedic effect. She performed spectacularly under hypnosis, going into convulsions on cue, becoming calm on cue, and following Charcot's every direction. Her shows were more popular and more reliable than those of any other patient. Wow. She was sometimes told that a blank piece of paper was a naked picture of her, whereupon she'd snatch it away from the holder and tear it up. The most popular demonstrations were when Charcot told her that half 
harmless water as poison and directed her to give it to a randomly chosen person in the room. She did as he instructed. Sharper was also played with reports that some patients feigned symptoms for their attention and fame. Yeah, totally. Mm-hmm. Marie was a hysteric until death, but the death wasn't her own. Sharper died in 1893. From then on, Blanche never experienced another convulsion. So love cannot be explained, but what would it what would be if we didn't try? Blanche Whitman wrote these two sentences five times in more or less the same wording in notebooks that weren't discovered until 25 years after wow. her death, encasing a brown folder labelled book question. It's thought that Blanche's first true love was Professor Charcot. After the death of Charcot, Blanche went to work with Marie Curie. Oh, wow. Yeah. And she became, Small world. In it. She became a radiology assistant. However, the dangers of radiation were not known back then. No. And so she was exposed repeatedly to radiation. Radiation, she wrote in her notebook, is making my body disintegrate. It literally made your bones... Yeah. Like, crumble. So over-familiarity with pitch blend resulted in terrible lesions, lesions sorry, ne- necessitating amputations of her left arm and both. At her death, she was... Um, reported to be a sort of torso, though with a head. So sadly, Blanche, from a dysfunctional background and classified insane, recovers her mental health only to end her days as an anomaly in a wooden box cart. That is the story. Poor Blanche. The Queen of Hysterics. But working with Marie Curie, you know, she should be remembered for doing some pretty good stuff. Yeah, I think she had such a life. You know, she had a pretty traumatic upbringing. Sure, and you know, when you have that kind of trauma, you do tend to make not the greatest choice of love lovers. No, but I, I do believe that she loved him, and she, I think, you know, perhaps performed to stay in his favour. Yeah. Which I get, but then, like, looking at her upbringing, maybe she did have, like, some kind of form of epilepsy. Yeah, it sounds a bit like mm. it, doesn't it? So, yeah, I just found it a very interesting story. Poor Blanche. Mm. Well, it's interesting some of the stuff you spoke about, you know, with the poisoning and stuff, because okay. I have seven ways not to die. Uh, and I stole some of this from Mental Floss, a website. I read it, I rewrote it, but that is as much as the research I did. <laughs> It's not really peer review or anything. It's uh, it's read some stuff, rewrote it to fit my narrative. Is it plagiarised? Not vastly. <laughs> <laughs> Number one, don't wear green. Okay. Before the seventy, before seventeen eighties, green was a tricky colour to create on cloth, and dressmakers depended on depended on combining a yellow and blue dye to produce the hue. But in the late 1770s, a Swedish-German chemist named Carl Willem Schkeli invented a new chemical, a new green pigment, sorry, by mixing potassium with white arsenic. Excellent. On a copper solution. The pigment was dubbed Paris Green, among other names, and it became a huge sensation, and it was used to colour walls, paintings, fabrics, candles, food wrappers, and even children's toys. Not surprisingly, it caused uh, sores, scabs, and damage to the tissue, as well as nausea, cro- uh, colic, diarrhoea, and constant headaches. That's wow. great. Be suspicious of your clothes is number two. Okay. Lice and other... Uh, body parasites that carried deadly diseases such as typhus and trench fever were big in the 19th century. Clothes that were made in infected places could then be uh, could then transmit the infection. Women also worried about their skirts sweeping through the muck and excrement of the city streets. Uh. 
where the bacteria was rife. Uh, some women wore special skirt fastenings to keep them up from the gunk, but the poor often wore second-hand clothes, suffering from small spots, small spots, smallpox, and other diseases spread by the fabric that was recycled without being washed properly. Number three, don't wear big skirts. Gigantic ruffles, crinolines supporting the underskirts may have been fine for ladies of leisure, but they weren't a great combination with the industry, with the machinist industries. This warning is a wise one. In at least one printing office, a girl was caught by her crinoline and dragged under the machine, under the printing press. The girl was reportedly very slim and escaped unharmed. Oh, wow. Don't be a tool. <laughs> <laughs> Avoid the flowing white cotton. The, this was very popular in the 18th and 19th centuries and had dangers to both the maker and the wearer. It was produced with often brutal slavery on the plantations and it was highly flammable. In 1809, John Heathcote painted a machine that made the first machine woven tool, which could catch fire in an instant. Ballerinas were particularly at risk. Oh British ballerinas. Clara Webster died in 1844 when her tutu caught fire at London's Drury Lane Theatre after her skirts came too close to the stage lights. Oh yeah, mate, shit. Don't be a taxi dummy is my number five. I, I really went to town with these. I do apologise. Dead birds were a popular addition to a lady's hat in the 19th century. Um, and the millinery industry killed millions of small songbirds. But for the women, it was the arsenic that was used in the taxidermy that was killing them. Number six, not just a hat rack. Hats helped to keep your head warm, Sarah. Did you know? But many hats were made with mercury that rapidly entered the body through the skin causing horrible health effects convulsions, abdominal cramps, trembling, paralysis reproductive problems and so many more. Is that not like where the phrase mad as a hatter came from? That is! Not just a hat rack. No I'm not. <laughs> Number seven. Less is more. And we could say that about this podcast too. <laughs> Especially when it comes to the makeup in Victorian times. Oh. A painted face with a uh, painting a face with lead white paint was fashionable with women. One of the most popular lead laced cosmetic products was called Larder's Bloom of Youth. And in the 1869, one of the founders of the American Associated Medical Society treated three young women who had been using the product and temporarily lost full use of their hands and wrists as a result. Oh my God. Uh, and that's my seven tips to not die as a woman. Noted. So I just wanted to tell you about some cool ladies. So I want to tell you about Emma Gatewood. She was born in 1887 and died in 1973. Affectionately known as Grandma Gatewood, the first woman to walk the Appalachian trails solo in one season. She completed the hike three times, the last at the age of 75. Emonda Lewis, 1844, not sure when she died, was the first African-American artist to earn international fame for her artwork. She was famous for several of her works, including a bust which sold over a hundred plaster copies. She challenged racist preconceptions, outspoken and bold. Edmonia worked hard, studying at a art college in Ohio. She moved to Boston to continue her studies and she opened her own studio and she had uh, she was a successful and famed and inspirational artist to a lot of generally young women. Awesome. Then we have Nana Asuma, 1793-1863, a princess, poet and teacher. She's got the job I want. Oh, yes. 
considered the precursor to modern feminism in Africa. Wow. Uh, she had such an impact on education of women that in Nigeria today, many Islamic women's organisations, schools and meeting halls are named after her. Oh. And then we have Jane Austen, 1775 to 1817, one of the most famous modern era feminists. Jane Austen's literacy work is still laundered around the world today and she's known for her novels and the ones I know are Pride and Prejudice, Sense and Sensibility and Emma. I love Emma. I don't know if she wrote any more. Yeah, she did. Okay. I was going to say three book wonder. (laughs) She's like, just do three and I'll retire. Her books are, they are really good. And then I've got Ada Lovelace, 1815 to 1852, and I really like Ada Lovelace. She was a daughter of the famed poet Lord Byron. Ada loved machines and mathematics, and it was in her teen years that she began working with Charles Babbage, a.k.a. the father of computers. But yeah, they are my cool ladies, and I I will be putting them up on Instagram. Please do. Um, Yeah, I really enjoyed that. So that, I suppose, for me, they were like tips about how to be a badass woman. Sure. In the 19th century. Which was a hard time to be a badass woman. It was. Because as you pointed out, um, we didn't have many rights. Zero. We were property. Property. Hysterical. Yeah. If you were just having a bad period. We couldn't work. Or maybe a witch. Or maybe a witch. We couldn't work. No. Unless. You were a pirate. Or a prostitute. <laughs> sex worker. Yeah. Yeah. So it's now time for... Survivor of the Week. Ba ba ba. I'm not going to do that again. Alan... And Elaine Reese unwittingly cut out the internet to their entire Welsh village every single morning for 18 months. What? Due to an aged £30 TV set. <laughs> what? A retired, right, retired? A retired couple confessed to wiping out their village every day uh, for the past year and a half. Alan and Elaine were totally unaware that their problematic old TV was wiping out the internet. And and engineers were left baffled when the internet for the village would disappear at 7am every single day. The mystery was finally solved when the electrical noise responsible was traced to the couple's home. The set, which was in the couple's bedroom, was turned on every morning to watch Good Morning Britain. Retired GP receptionist... Elaine said, One morning during the lockdown at around 8.30am, we could hear two men outside talking about signal strength. We looked out the window and we saw they were BT engineers holding some kind of meter. One of them was pointing at our front door. Next thing, they were knocking on the door and asking us to turn the telly off at the wall. She added that the set would turn on about 7am because she loved Piers Morgan in the morning. (sighs) Hello? Um, retired farmer Alan, with a U, added, he told me we'd better get rid of that set immediately because it was interfering with the internet connection all over the village. An openreach engineer, Michael Jones, said, as you can imagine, when we pointed this out to the residents, they were mortified that their second-hand TV was causing a a problem to the entire village's broadband, and they switched it off immediately and promised not to use it again. And that is my probably a little bit shit Survivor of the Week story. So all that remains is, if you're going to be a woman in the 19th century, don't be an angel of the home. Be a pirate princess. And keep on surviving!